Good morning. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Father, for the time that we have had just now to express our love for you through song and our appreciation for who you are and all that you have done for us. Thanks, too, that we have had the time as we've gathered together to express our love for one another. It's such a blessing to my heart as I sit in the back and I see people come in and be greeted with a hug, a handshake, uh, to know that there's genuine Christian love that is displayed in this church family. What a joy that must be to you too as you look down upon us and you see us loving each other as we love you. Father, too, we love your word and we invite you now to speak to us through the proclamation of your word. And we pray that you would make these things clear, that you would challenge us, that at the process of knowing you more, and loving you more, we are in awe of what a big God, what a great God you are. The God not of our imagination or of our choosing. A God who is God and is a loving God. Now speak to us. Illuminate your words to us by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, both in the speaker and in the hearer. And give us understanding ears. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The term united in death is a trope that's often used as a metaphor when people, when the second person in a couple dies and then they're buried with the first person who dies and we say they are united in death. It, it can describe a couple literally or metaphorically that are being reunited in death. But really, we don't mean so much that they're united in death as now that they are dead, they have been reunited. So they're in death, they have been reunited in life. It doesn't have to be a romantic couple either. It can be parents with a child or, or siblings or, or friends. Remember the movie uh, Titanic? There, it's, there's a true part of this story where Isidore Stratus, he's the co-owner of Macy's, and he's a passenger on the Titanic. And in every single display of the, the movie Titanic, this guy and his wife, Ida, are, are part of the, 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 the incident. So you remember the ship gets hit by an iceberg, and Ida gives up her place on the lifeboat to her maid, Ellen Bird, and she tells her husband, we have lived together for many years. Where you go, I go. And then in the movie, they're, sit, they're sitting, wait, in reality, they're sitting on the deck in chairs just calmly watching the whole thing take place. In the movie, the 1997 movie, Titanic, they're the couple that are in their bed and while the room's filling up with water. Um, in in uh, 1943, Nazi Germany also made a movie, Titanic, also included this couple, only did not mention that they were Jewish, of course, but, but they're, they're in every one of these episodes. Now, another example of being united in death is the famous incident of Pompeii and Herculeum in 79, um, A.D. at 1 p.m. August 24th, uh, ash starts to fall on Pompeii and people are running for cover. Um, the ash is building up quite quickly. And then both cities get hit by a 400 mile an hour pyroclastic flow of 1300 degrees, literally cook your brain inside the skull kind of heat, and buries the whole town of Pompeii. They knew where, about where it was, but nobody had excavated it till the late 1800s. And when they did, they found all kinds of people who were huddled together in this moment of crisis. Couples together, um, families together, whole groups of people gathered together. There was 2,000 uh, remnants, uh, I'm not sure what the right word to use is here, remains, voids of people that had died, been covered up in the pyroclastic flow in, at uh, Pompeii. And in this case, practically the whole city is united in death. Now, I use these illustrations to point out something that we've been talking about for a long time, and that is that we have two federal heads. We are united in death with Adam, and we are united in death with Jesus. We are united in death. We are united in death with Adam because of his sin, he died, and all of us being born to him are born inheriting his sin. And so we are united in death with Adam to death. We die because of his death. But two, we talk about being united in death in Jesus Christ, that we have died 
with Christ. And because of his death, we live. Because of the disobedience of Adam, a curse was brought upon all mankind. But because of the obedience of Christ, um, we, are, we, are, we are cured of the curse. And in both cases, we are united in death with our federal heads, Adam and Jesus. Now, I'd like you to take your Bible and turn with me where we left off a couple weeks ago. Um, so chapter 5, verse 20, just a brief overview. So far, you know, we can divide the book of Romans, um, the, the introduction is chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and then from the introduction we move to the condemnation, um, eight, verse 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, and then from there to justification, 321 to 521, that's where we left off, and we begin this next heading or chapter of the book of Romans of sanctification, and it begins in our text today in Romans 6, 1, and goes all the way through the end of chapter 8. At any rate, Adam's fall meant the fall for every human being. His disobedience meant we died with him. Christ's righteousness leads to us being righteous before God, and in both cases, their death is what we are identified with. Paul calls these two guys in 1 Corinthians, he calls them the two Adams, the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam, the one that was created, that fell, and then the last Adam, Jesus, who finished what Adam was supposed to have done. He achieved um, what God meant for us to do. So we call that federalism. They are our federal heads. And the point is not that because Adam sinned, everybody sins. The point is not that because he sins, you sinned, though that's true. The point is that Adam stands for us. He represents us. In his death, we die, and we are represented by that Adam. So, too, though we didn't literally die when Jesus died, we are represented in his death. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones says there's a very clear parallel to um, the imputation of righteousness. He writes, Adam's sin is imputed to us in exactly the same way that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We inherit, of course, a sinful nature from Adam, but that's not what condemns us. What condemns us, what makes us subject to death, is the fact that we have all sinned in Adam and we are all held guilty of sin. It's our union with Adam that accounts for all of our trouble. It's our corresponding union with Christ that accounts for our salvation. So. We pick up our story in Romans 5, uh, beginning in verse 12, and Paul is viewing salvation from the point of the curse of Adam, and then he resolves it by leading us to the cure in Christ. The, uh, in Romans 5.20 uh, begins, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. If you underline your Bible, Underline that. Grace abounded all the more, so that as, in, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So verse 20 begins by mentioning the law. Now let's go back up and, re, and review what Paul has already said in Romans about the law. He said two important things about the law. First, he says that the law was not given so that we can be justified through it. But rather, the law was given so that we might be aware that we can't be justified through the law. Now, the Jewish people thought quite differently. They thought the law was given so that a person could be justified, so that by observing the law and following the law, by doing all the things the law required, a person becomes justified. So the law becomes Judaism's greatest treasure. Now, Paul sets out to disabuse the Jews of having that opinion. He says, you can't be made righteous through the law because the law only tells you what you should do. It does not enable you. It does not give you the power to do what it requires. In fact, that's summed up in uh, chapter 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, 
no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we became conscious of sin. Now, the second thing we discover here in Romans 5, 12 through 19, leading up to where we're looking at about the law is that it's not necessary for you to violate the law in order to be condemned. People were condemned in Adam before there was a law. It's, it's, uh, it's not our own sin that initially makes us guilty. It's that we were born into the race of Adam, verse 19, that many were made sinners. In his book, uh, God's Motive for Grace, Donald Barnhouse gives several motives for why God should be displaying this superabounding grace that we're talking about today. And he says the primary motive for God's superabounding grace is stated in the text that we're looking at today, that God acted in order, and then he quotes, to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So that's referring to all redeemed men and women. And the point is that God acted in this superabounding grace so that he might do good to us. Now, isn't that primarily what Jesus said in John 3, 16? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. So you have a condition statement, the Greek word hina. You have a condition statement in both cases. Why does God act in this superabounding grace in 521? Because he wants to benefit us. He wants us to... Uh, to receive eternal life. And, and, and Jesus said that both in a negative and a positive way. The, the motive for God's action is so that we should not perish, spoken of negatively, and then the same thing spoken in a positive way, that we should inherit eternal life. So God's primary motive for this superabounding grace is that we should benefit from his grace. So Barnhouse comments, and he says, the sinner who comes to Christ discovers this motive for grace. He can say, God does not want me to perish. God wants me to have everlasting life. God has done something about it. How wonderful to me that God did not want me to perish, for I deserve to perish. How wonderful that God wanted me to have eternal life, for I deserved death. So that's the primary motive, Barnhouse says, of why God displays this superabundant grace that we're talking about. Now let's look to chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So when I outlined this for you, I told you chapter 6 begins a new section talking about sanctification. We've just been talking about justification, which follows condemnation. But even though this is the new heading here, sanctification is not entirely new, right? Because where he starts is, what shall we say then? Well, what shall we say about what? Well, then you back up to 520. What shall we say about where sin increased, grace increased all the more, or grace abounded all the more, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, this doctrine of God's triumphal grace, where does that lead? And he's going to deal with two possibilities. It could lead, logically, it could lead, if, if God has this super abundant, abounding grace where sin increases, grace increases abundantly more, it could lead us to think that, well, if it's all about grace and not about works, if there's nothing that I do to earn my salvation or win a place in heaven, then why do anything good whatsoever? Because God's grace is greater than any of my sin. Why not just continue in this sinful conduct? That's called the antinomian objection. Antinomian comes from two parts in Greek. Anti, meaning not, or none, or against. And nomos, meaning law, or rule, or... Uh, or order. So antinomianism means acting against the law or not having a rule, not having law. So the antinomian objection is that if, that if uh, our sin is conquered by God's abundant grace, then the more I sin, the more grace God shows. The more grace God shows, 
the more it highlights God's glory. So I should sin more, and God would be glorified more by that. So that's one possibility, a very real possibility. By the way, this, this is the logical conclusion. The other conclusion is that because of this triumph of God's grace, it should lead to righteousness, that our lives should now reflect a godlike quality, that we should completely opposite of the antinomianism. But this other side often leads to legalism. So in this sixth chapter, the whole rest of the chapter, Paul's answering this question. What are we supposed to say about this superabounding grace of God? Okay, like I mentioned earlier, it is a logical conclusion. It is logical. It's stupid, but it's logical <laughs> to conclude God receives glory by showing his grace, his forgiveness, and his compassion to sinners. That's true, right? And God shows abundant grace to people who are complete derelicts, who sin a lot, like Terry Johnson. God shows an immense amount of grace. So if God is showing this immense amount of grace and the consequence is an immense amount of glory to God, shouldn't we sin more? The more we sin, the more grace, the more grace, the more glory. Well, it's... It, it's, it's logical, you know, but, it, but it's kind of stupid. Isn't it interesting, too, though, that this is the test of any gospel that is proclaimed, which is biblical or Pauline, because it, we preach the fact that it is all of grace, that you are saved by faith alone through grace alone. This is not something that you are credited for. That's a gift of God. And yet, if we're saying that there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, shouldn't it at least suggest that why bother with good works? Why bother doing good things if you're saved by grace alone? Why shouldn't we just go on sinning? And, of course, that was the objection which was brought against Martin Luther, you know, when he says it's all about grace. You're saved by faith through grace alone. And he keep pounding that point home. And they said, well, you're going to just encourage people to sin the more. He said the same thing about George Whitfield, who's talking about grace. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And it just it's a logical conclusion then that uh, one of two things is going to happen. You're, you're, you're encouraging people to sin through this licentious attitude of, of God's grace, or you're going to have to reel them in through legalism. You know, that's always been the problem in the church, too. These, these two extremities, you know, the, the fact that we, that we encourage licentiousness because of we preach grace alone. Remember what happened in the Corinthian church. You know, Paul writes them, why are you guys putting up with this incestuous, incestuous couple? You should throw them out. And they were thinking, hey, we're all about grace here in this church. We're so loving and kind. This is a great testimony of grace. In a more recent example, in the early 1900s, there was a monk by the name of Rasputin who got, ahead, got control of the ruling family, the Ro Romanovs. Is that right? Romanov At any rate, <laughs> it's the early 1900s. Rasputin is a Christian monk, and he taught you should sin a lot because the more you sin the more God's grace is displayed. Therefore, it's our duty to sin with abandon because it, it, that's what God wants. God wants you to sin so that he can show grace. It's just through this repeated experiences of sin and repentance that, that God is, is glorified. And it's not surprising that that same attitude is really displayed in modern churches today too, you know, where people especially having to do with sexual sins. You know, they say that God is glorified through it. God permits it. Some people will say, God wants me to. And they'll use this text as an example of why they should continue on in their sin. If you don't see the problem here that I'm outlining here, it raises a couple of questions. Either you don't understand the gospel 
or you're blind to your own sinful inclinations. If any of these things is true about you, of course, it's, it means that uh, if, if you're troubled by the problem, it means you're on the right course, that you should be troubled by the fact that you have died in Christ and yet you still sin with reckless abandon. Of course, the legalistic Jews, like I said, would charge Paul with this antinomianism. They said Paul is contradicting the law, that he's encouraging people to just ignore the law and live life like you find it. Just enjoy life, do whatever you want, you know, live, do what you please. They were accusing Paul of just abandoning all, all moral and spiritual rules and just saying just live it up. God's all about forgiveness and grace. And to make things worse, I mean, they didn't understand this concept of faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. They were thinking, look, man, if you don't put some boundaries out, people are just going to sin and really mess stuff up. And so they were saying not only is this, this attitude of grace alone dangerous to preach, but it, it's, it is completely anti-God. It's inconceivable that you would encourage people to go on sinning so that grace could, could magnify. And they found that to be intolerable, diabolical. And they, like so many churches today, try to protect the integrity of the gospel, of God's word, by adding man-made laws to it. So now we're getting these two polar opposites, one group that says, do whatever you want. You know, live life to the max. God's all about grace. And another group that's saying, whoa, 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 whoa. If you let people just do what they want, they're going to wander away. They're going to be completely offensive. We need to make rules. We need to make conditions. We need these regulations or, or ceremony to keep people good. And the church has always been in danger of those two extremes. You know, but false believers wickedly using their freedom as justification for, for, for sin. Jude spoke of that in Jude 4. He said, certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. MacArthur wrote, in light of the pervasive antinomianism of our own day, there is no more important truth for believers to understand than the inseparable connection between justification and sanctification as salvation components, between new life in Christ and living the life in the holiness that Christ demands and provides. By their unbiblical teaching of easy beliefism, and the worldly lifestyles of both leaders and members, many churches who go under the banner of evangelicalism give little evidence either of redemption or of the holiness that necessarily accompany, accompanies saving grace. And by the way, just for a, a, a point of discussion here, we're, we're not talking about the Christian who occasionally sins. We're talking about the Christian who regularly engages in a lifestyle uh, of sin, who's, who is intentional and willful in their sinning. They've establishing this pattern of sin in their life, and then they excuse it by saying it's all about grace anyway. Back to verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace by, may abound? And look what he answers. By no means, no way, God forbid, let it not be, meganoito, it's unthinkable. That's completely out of the question. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, that's, just, that's the answer right there, isn't it? How can we who have died to sin still live in sin? How can we live in it any longer? We, we've died to sin. What makes this proposition of since God is glorified by my sinning, let's keep on sinning. What makes that proposition so absurd, so stupid? Because it overlooks God's purpose in salvation. And Paul is now unfolding that purpose of salvation. What, what is that purpose? Well, you know, clearly his purpose is to save us from sin, but, but what does that mean? You know, 
Does it mean that God's purpose in saving us is to relieve us of the punishment of sin? Well, yes, it does mean that we're relieved of the punishment of sin, but it doesn't only mean that. If you were just to focus that God's purpose of salvation was to remove the, the punishment of sin, you would be left only with the concept of justification, that we are justified only somehow we are going to be saved from the final wrath, which is to come. But that's not all that it means. Well, someone say, well, then perhaps what he means here is that we are additionally we're saved from the guilt of sin. And, and yes, that's true. We are saved from sin's guilt because our guilt was dealt with. We're not forgiven and the guilt just overlooked. What makes us not guilty and removes our guilt that we bear for our sin is the fact that God's already dealt with it. He's already punished someone for it. Someone has died in place of me for my sin. And so I don't have to be guilty because I too have positionally died with Christ. The, the guilt has been paid for. But that's not all that it means. Well, does he mean uh, we're freed from the presence of sin? Well, that's obviously not true because we sin every day. And the presence of sin will not be removed from us until one day we stand fully glorified, so justified, sanctified, glorified. We have been justified. We are being sanctified. One day we will be glorified. And when that happens, there won't be the presence of sin. But that's not what he's talking about, obviously, in the text before us today. So each of these matters, of course, is, is, is crucially important but not what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is that we are delivered from the practice of sin now, in this life, in this moment, in this time. We are delivered from the practice of sin. No part of our deliverance from sin can be rightly separated from the other, but the point that he's making here is that we can't go on practicing sin because we have died to Christ. We have become identified with him in death. And if we go on sinning, we are contradicting the very purpose of God in our salvation. Now, verse 1, Paul raises this objection um, to, to his doctrine, and he's, he's asking this question, shall we go on sinning so that sin may increase? And his answer is, is by no means, and his explanation being straightforward, by no means why? Because we died. We died to sin. How can we keep living in it any longer? See, that's the, the whole of his position here. And he repeats this position over and over and over again. Look how, let's just do a quick, a quick review of chapter 6. In every single verse, he mentions this. We have died to sin. How can you keep living in sin if you've died to sin? Verse 3, all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. Verse 5, we have been united with him like this in his death. Verse 6, our old self was crucified with him. Verse 7, anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 8, we died with Christ. And this continues to go all the way through verse 10, where he's applying it. And he says, in the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to Jesus Christ. And then, of course, the application comes in verse 14, and we'll be sometime getting there. But an analysis of the whole chapter has to do with the fact that we are dead to sin. That's the fundamental thought. So we have to understand, how have we died to sin? Exactly what does that mean? Because there's a, there's a dissonance between what we realize in our life and what we know positionally we have been given. How, in what sense, are we dead to sin? The first answer, of course, is that uh, we have died to sin because Christ has, has, has suffered the, the penalty for us. So there's something here about the answer to how we have died to sin is we have to ask the, the subsequent question, if we have died in Christ, how did Christ die to sin? How are we dead to sin is going to be reflected in the answer here of how Christ died to sin. And, and of course, he died he suffers the penalty 
um, in our place. And so if you carry that analogy through, and we, we, we see that we are justified, we, the guilt is removed because Christ died in our place. And if you jump ahead to verse 10, you'll notice two things. Uh, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Notice here it does not say that Christ died for sin. Though he did, that's true, but that's not what verse 10 says. It doesn't say he died for sin. It said he died to sin. And coincidentally, verse 2 in the section that we're looking at today says, we died to sin. Obviously, we didn't die for sin, but something about the way Christ died to sin parallels with verse 2, that we died to sin. So, that's, that's a set of us, too. Now, the second thing um, this statement says is not only did Christ die to sin, but he died to sin once for all. It, it can't be repeated. He died to sin once for all, so the life he lives, he lives to God. So this means that as far as Christ is concerned, there was a time when he was in relationship to sin. I mean, that's obvious. When he came to the earth, though he did not sin, he had a direct relationship to sin. Why? Because he came to die for sin. There's a, there's a connection and attachment of sin to Christ, though he's not a sinner. Having died for sin, having died to sin, he can't die for it again. He's resurrected to this new life. It's, it's, uh, it, it can't be repeated. Having died... Sin has no further attachment to him. Death has no further attachment to him. He's done with it once and for all. It's complete. It can't be repeated. Moreover, verse 9, which coincidentally comes right before verse 10, says exactly the same thing. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no mastery over him. Now you have to apply all that to ourselves. Because how does understanding death to sin, how does that apply to us? How does that refer to us? We realize, of course, that we have this union with Christ in his death, just as we have this union with Adam in his death. And just as Christ can't go back and be re-crucified or re-dead, so too you can't go back. You died to sin. You can't go back. You have to embrace that fact and, and deal with it. And perhaps an illustration here would be helpful. John Stock gives this illustration uh, of uh, John Jones. Sorry, Doug. No, no relation to you, I think. <laughs> he, uh, John Stock gives this illustration of John Jones, who has a before Christ, we'll call that a B.C., and an after-deliverance, A.D., and he says John Jones has two parts of his life. There's this life that he led before he came to Christ, and there's the life that he now lives since he's become a Christian. We're not talking about two natures. We're talking about two sections, two chapters of this person's life uh, before conversion and after conversion, the old John Jones and the, the new one. And he's pointing out that at the point of conversion, which is paralleled to his baptism, because people got baptized immediately upon conversion, um, the, his conversion signifies by his baptism illustrates the fact that he has died in Christ, that there is a union with Christ in his death. You have this old man and the new man. And he says, that is an illustration of every one of us. Every one of us, says Dot, is the John Jones. Um, there's an old self, which when we came to Christ and were baptized, we crucified that old self and we were raised to this new life. And then Stott amplifies his illustration this way. He says, our biography is written in two volumes. Volume one is the story of the old man, the old self, of me before my conversion. Volume two is the story of the new man, the new self, me after I was made a new creation in Christ. Volume one of my biography ended with the judicial death of the old self. I was a sinner, 
I deserve to die. I did die. I received my deserts in my substitute with whom I have become one. Volume two of my biography opened with my resurrection. The old life having finished, a new life to God has begun. So if we were to continue now that we have begun this new life, by continuing to live in this old life of sin and then piously assume that we are doing it so that God can be glorified by expressing his grace, we have not really died to sin, have we? We've gone back. The life of sin is the life we died to, and there's, there's no going back. And that's why I say this section that we're looking at now, particularly verse 2, is really the key to understanding our sanctification. Well, let's move on. Verse 3. Do I have time? I'm still okay. You don't have anything else to do. Don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we, too, might walk in the newness of life. Now, in Paul's time, and of course, that's true even today in different parts of the world, to be uh, to, to be converted meant you were instantly to be baptized. To be baptized was the point of no return, the departure from your old life. You literally could be killed because you were baptized as a Christian. Nobody then, in fact, nobody now, really cares if you listen to Christian propaganda. They don't care if you come to church and you hear somebody talk. But when you get baptized, you're saying, I renounce my old life and everything that was part of that old life, and I, have, I am dead to that. And there's a, a pledge that is made at that baptism where you're identifying physically, that's why we like to do baptisms by immersion, you're identifying physically that you are being laid into the grave, identifying with his death. And if I talked for a long time at that point, holding you underwater, you literally could die. <laughs> Then the picture is, the symbolism is, that you are raised to this new life. I'm leaving the old life behind. I'm now living my life for, for Christ Jesus. So the Christian is dying to the old self, and he makes a pledge at that point of baptism. And he's saying, Jesus, I want you to come in and be Lord of my life. I am dying to self that Christ Jesus might reign in this life. Do you remember making that pledge? That's what you said when you were baptized. You're exchanging your guilt. You're exchanging the condemnation of your old life for the liberty and the glory, the holiness, the presence of Christ in your life. It's very much like a, a vow of marriage, isn't it? You know, when you get married... <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. When you're getting married, you're making this pledge. You're saying, my old life is past. The life of being single, the life of flirting around, all the things that I could do and not be accountable for, that's past. Because now I'm making a promise to be united to this person. So the old life symbolized by the cross, the new life symbolized by the raising from the water, and since we have died, that sin no longer has authority over us. Not that you don't sin. It's just you're not forced to sin. You sin because you want to, not because you're, you, you can't avoid it. And you think as married men and women, and you think as baptized Christians, you think, well, wasn't life great before? You remember how much fun sin was? Hebrews 11.25, there's pleasure in sin for a season. You remember all the frolicking that you could do, all the wild nightlife? Remember all the fun it was to sin? Yeah, but do you remember the emptiness? Do you remember the guilt? Do you remember the burden? Do you remember the weight? Do you really want to go back to that? 
Are you still drawn to something? You just remember the good parts. You don't remember how it held you in bondage. Why would you want to go back? Lucado said, what form of amnesia is this? Like a bride horrified to see her new husband flirting with women at the wedding reception. Paul asked, did you forget your vows? Indeed, baptism is a vow, a sacred vow of the believer to follow Christ. Just as a wedding celebrates the fusion of two hearts, baptism celebrates the union of sinner with Savior. We become part of Christ when we are baptized. Do the bride and groom understand all of the implications of the wedding? No. Do they know every challenge or threat they will face? No. But they know that they love each other and they vow to be faithful to the end. When a willing heart enters the water of baptism, does he know the implications of that vow? No. Does she know every temptation or challenge? No. But both know the love of God and they're responding to him. Now, please understand that though the subject here, we're talking about the baptism that we do. That's not actually what Paul's talking about. The baptism that we do is a sign and a symbol of the real thing. The baptism we do is what men do for others. But it signifies, it symbolizes, it represents the baptism that the Holy Spirit does in the heavenly. That's the real baptism that Paul's talking about here. It symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit and it's dramatized by the, the, the symbol of, of baptism by the water here. So Paul's referring to this He's not thinking chiefly of the sacrament of baptism. He's talking about rather that we are joined to Christ by the Holy Spirit. But while emphasizing that, I don't want to miss the significance that the sacrament of baptism is, is done. You know, and it's unfortunate because in our time, two things. One, baptism is typically done in an entirely Christian setting. And we see that as being a rite of initiation. We don't it's not like it was in, in, Christ, in Paul's time or in other parts of the world where when you got baptized, you were declaring to the world, you're declaring to your fellows, this guy is gone. I'm dead to that life. I'm taking on this new identification with Christ. That was a, a very bold and, and risky declaration and often put a believer's life in jeopardy, but you're saying that uh, you're going to live from now on for Christ. But, but back then, and not here, but in other parts of the world, it's still an irrevocable step. You know, in a Muslim community, you know, you can go to church, you can hear their propaganda, you can be amused by it all, but when you got baptized, you were renouncing your Muslim heritage, and they would think that the best thing they could do for you is to kill you. It's, it was seen as the, the most irreversible step that a, that a Christian could, could do. Therefore, when, when Paul's talking about this water baptism, he, again, he's, he's talking about that you are declaring through this symbolic act that you are done to this old life forever and that you're, you're not going back. But that really brings us to the critical question that I want to end with. What if I do go back? What if as a Christian I, I, I do go back to sin? What if I sin again? Well, there's two points to think about. The first is, it won't work. If the Christian is really a Christian, he is unable to go back to that old lifestyle of sin. It'd be like... It'd be like an adult trying to go back to being a child again. You know, an adult can act childish. You can act immature. You can do things that are an embarrassment and, and silly. But you really can't go back to being a child. Um, in the same way, if you're a, a real Christian, if you're genuinely born again, you can't return to your life of sin. I mean, don't misunderstand me. You can sin. We all do. We all sin regularly. We all have a unique signature sin that we are particularly drawn back to time and time again. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you, if you do go back to your sin, you will hate yourself and you will hate your sin. You will find it completely repugnant and you will do 
anything you can to free yourself from it. And if you sin, it's unconvincing. It'd be like, remember when Peter swore that he didn't know Jesus three times, and even though he'd hung out with Jesus for three years. And what do the observers say? Aren't you one of his disciples too? People know that you're a Christian and you sin because you're trying to act like them and show that you can be just like them and still be saved. What are they saying? You're a Christian? Aren't you a Christian? See what I'm saying? You, there's, there's no going back there. But secondly, there's no going back to sin because God will stop you. Now, I don't mean that God will stop you from sinning. Obviously, that's not the case because you still sin. But he'll stop you from continuing in that sin, and he'll do that in one of two ways. One, he will make you absolutely miserable so that you will beg God to deliver you from your sin and to restore you to his fellowship. Or the second possibility is God will take your life. Remember 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I can't find the verse, maybe verse 9. But the point is, you know, when we do communion, the, the, we usually end before we get to these verses where Paul says that many have died because they have taken communion in an unworthy manner. Remember that part? God acted to remove them in death. He took them home to heaven because of the seriousness, the heinousness of the sin. You think God's forgotten that? He doesn't do that anymore? This is both a very terrifying and gracious prospect. You know, I realize how desperately wicked my heart is, and I realize how very capable of some of the most heinous sins that you can imagine I am capable of committing. And I pray that in God's mercy, if that's where I'm headed, that God would take me out rather than me continuing in that sinful way and bring shame upon him and upon the church and on my family. Now that's, that's frightening, but it's also very merciful. If you are able to go back to your former life of sin with that reckless abandon and completely renounce your belonging to Jesus Christ, then it indicates that you never were saved in the first place, that you're not saved now. But it's worse than that. It's worse than that because you have become inoculated to Christianity. You become so resistant to him that you are unable literally to repent and come back. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it's impossible for those who have been once enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming of age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Another very frightening possibility, is it not? Can you as a Christian still sin? Well, yeah, of course. You know, we still have two natures. We're, we're, we're going to continue to sin until we finally stand in glory and the sanctification process is finished when we are glorified. We have the old Adam still in us. Will God forgive us of those sins? Absolutely. How about really bad sins? Yes, he will forgive those too. He has forgiven all the sins that you have committed and he did that knowing all of the sins that you will yet commit. And his grace is sufficient. If a Christian sins, will God forgive him? Yes. There's a, there's a hymn that's recorded in 2 Timothy 2.11. It's an early Christian song that says, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And the point is, when Christ comes into our lives and begins to indwell us and empower us, we will change. And we'll change because we want to. Because we desire to live lives that, that please God and reflect this, this new life. We'll change because we, there's an indwelling of Christ. There's a newness of life. And this newness enables us to live an entirely different existence, a higher plane. If you're a Christian, 
God created you to have union with him. You are united with him through the death of Christ. You died when Christ died. And because you died, you're now free from the power, the authority of sin in your life. Because this is an unshakable position of your identity that you are positionally sanctified and yet not perfected, then we need to continue this life of renouncing our old self, of denying sin's dominion over our life, and reckoning ourselves to be what Christ has created us to be. Let's pray. Again, Father, my heart's passion is that we not have a small God, a God that we can manage, that we prefer, a God that we can dictate your behavior and qualities. Rather, may we stand in your presence in, in awe and wonder of who you are. And as we conform our thoughts and our lives to a great God, we invite you, please change us. Make us more like Christ. Father, I pray, forgive us for the times that we behave in a despicable manner. Forgive us for the times that we sin because when we as Christians sin, we are defying you as our Lord and Savior and we are neglecting our promise to follow you and let you be king of our lives. It's treason for us to return to that sinful life. And we declare it one and all. We, we renounce that heart. We invite you, Lord Jesus, be Lord of our lives. Be in control of everything we do, everything we say, that we might become more like you, that we not be ashamed, that we might reflect the love, the glory, the mercy, the forgiveness of God in our lives too. To this end, we pray in the name of our powerful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.